this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast i'm zubeda hamid your host for today on new year's day this year the country was rocked by the news of a horrific accident in delhi 20 year old anjali singh who was on a scooter was hit by a car and her body dragged for several kilometers soon after news reports indicated that investigating officers may consider a lie detector test for the five main accused persons in the crime this is not the first time a lie detector test has been brought up in the course of an investigation into a high profile case the accused in the shraddha walkar case after punawala underwent polygraph tests these tests have begun on three suspects in the murder of a tamil nadu minister's brother and a court has now allowed narco analysis and polygraph tests to be conducted on an accused person in the case of ankita bhandari a 19 year old murdered in uttarakhand as per news reports these are just a few of the recent cases where such scientific tests are being used on those accused of crimes in 2010 a supreme court ruling said that the use of narco analysis brain mapping and polygraph tests on accused suspected and witnesses to a crime without their consent was unconstitutional and violated their right against self incrimination it also said that such test results could not be admitted in evidence however any information or material subsequently discovered with the help of tests undertaken voluntarily could be admitted despite the ruling however these tests continue to be used to date but how scientific are they Several countries across the world have disbarred or significantly cut down on their use. Is there any evidence to suppose that they truly work? Do such invasive procedures violate the rights of those who undergo them? And have they led to any investigative breakthroughs in India? To speak to us about this and more, we have with us today Ginny Lokanita, Professor and Chair in Political Science and International Relations at Drew University. and author of the book The Truth Machines Policing Violence and Scientific Interrogations in India. Welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast Dr. Jini Lokanita. Thank you. Doctor, in the case of Anjali Singh who died in a horrific car accident on New Year's Eve, news reports now indicate that the police are considering lie detector tests for the five accused men. Could you give us an overview of these scientific methods of police investigation that often crop up in the news such as polygraph tests brain mapping and narco analysis how are they used and what kind of findings do they present Sure so uh, let me begin by just saying that uh, you know a lot of these techniques are sometimes mentioned in the context of very horrific cases right so just as you uh, mentioned anjali's case uh, similarly uh, more recently we've seen that in the context of shardha walkar's case and in both these cases in particular uh, you find that it raises questions about violence against women or safety of women in cities which should really be the primary focus of many of these cases uh but instead very quickly what we see is uh the focus on the kind of techniques that are going to be used in the criminal investigation right so so i just want to frame my answer in that context uh and just say that you know in particular this set of techniques uh, which in my work i call uh truth machines right because uh, there's often a claim made 
which I'll explain later, is more popularly made than legally that these techniques will get to the truth uh, in a particular case. So just very briefly, let me say a few uh, lines about uh, these techniques. So first of all, lie detectors uh, have been around uh, for a very long time, for centuries really. And basically uh, what we see there is uh, a machine sort of attached to the body which uh, sort of records uh, the basic parameters, right? Uh, basically your heartbeat, sweat uh, patterns, and so on and so forth. And basically um, those are recorded both when you're asked certain basic questions and then when there are certain questions connected to the crime that are actually asked um, and the response to that is then calculated either manually or uh, through uh, automated system uh, and analyzed by often a forensic psychologist. Now brain scanning is uh, a more recent technique. Uh, it uh, sort of we see that more in the 1990s. Um, and uh, basically, in that particular context, an electroencephalogram, EEG, is actually used to, uh, at, you know, there's a kind of a contraption on the head. And uh, basically, again, there are certain kinds of either words or images that are shown. And um, basically, you know, the, the brain readings are meant to indicate whether a person experienced the crime, which means that was there when the crime was actually taking place as opposed to, uh, for instance, witnessing something else. Um, so, so that is the claim made as far as uh, brain mapping or brain uh, fingerprinting is concerned. And then finally, narcoanalysis is uh, really the use of a drug, uh, sodium pentothal often, uh, where um, that is injected in a more medically monitored uh, context. And there's this understanding that uh, when this drug is given, it inhibits the ability of a person to lie, right? So you're in this twilight zone before you lose consciousness where uh, ostensibly a forensic psychologist can ask questions and basically the person's answers are supposed to be closer to the truth. So this is broadly the uh, three techniques that you asked me about. Doctor, getting into uh, the science of these, we know that many of these techniques are now uh, being disbarred in several countries when it comes to criminal investigation or they are not in use anymore or are fading out of use. What is really the science behind these? Is there any science considering the fact that a lot of other countries do not see them as very reliable techniques? So I think, uh, and I should say that, um, you know, when you call me a doctor, I'm of course a PhD doctor, right? Uh, but I'm a professor in political science and international relations. So just to clarify that for your audience as well. So, uh, so what I would say is that, um, you know, when we think about the scientific reliability and validity of these particular techniques, uh, it's important to remember that, as I said, you know, you almost have a history of lie detectors, which goes back 
um, you know, to sort of 19th century, 20th century, right? So basically, um, in, in fact, uh, even narcoanalysis was, you know, used in the 1910s, 20s in the US. So there's been a long history of uh, such uh, techniques. Brain fingerprinting, of course, is, um, you know, and brain mapping, or in, in the context of India, actually, what often is used is brain electrical oscillation signature test. Now, when you look at each of these, and particularly, you know, if we think of them, basically, with their distinct history, one finds that uh, polygraphs uh, that have always been seen as this very, you know, basic kind of technology, right? So earlier claims were made, yes, this is a great, you know, shift in uh, basically being able to read the parameters of a body. Very quickly it turned out that, um, you know, and scientific studies showed that basically people are able to even beat the uh, polygraph test uh, because it's really about uh, sort of controlling your ability to uh, deal with your body parameters, right? Um, and also that it could actually be similar to, you know, responding to a, a very uh, tense situation, right? So often people talk about how blood pressure may go up when you go uh, to a doctor's um, you know, office and when they check the, your blood pressure there, it is very different than what may normally be the case. So the reason why this is so important is to recognize that over time, then most countries, right, have either basically completely ruled it out in terms of admissibility of evidence, or they allow for it to be used in certain kinds of sort of uh, employment related things, right? So, so what is remarkable about this kind of technology is that sometimes uh, the use of it continues despite knowing that there may not be scientific reliability. That's a really important point to understand and I can explain this further uh, if needed. Uh, but let me come very quickly to sort of the brain-related technologies, which, as I said, are much more recent, right? And in that particular instance also, while there's been amazing brain-related research, which, you know, sort of does mention and sort of suggest ways of reading uh, brain activity, you know, for legal purposes, you need a much higher rate of success, right? So, the, again, the, uh, the scientists who are working on this, particularly in the West, uh, have basically been critical of its use in the criminal justice system. And there have been efforts to um, do that even in the US, in the Stephen Avery case, which was on a Netflix show. Uh, but usually, you know, the courts have still not been willing to accept it as evidence. Uh, in the Indian context, the lack of uh, reliability and validity has not unfortunately been uh, focused as much in the media, even though, you know, a government related committee actually said that these, these, there isn't enough uh, validity that can be seen in terms of peer reviewed literature. For narcoanalysis, again, there's a long history, uh, which I'll just say in uh, in a sentence or two, which is 
that there are two kinds of concerns, particularly with narcoanalysis. One, it is highly invasive, right? As I said, it is a drug injected to the body. If uh, something uh, happens, right, you get the dosage wrong, a person can be severely even physically impacted, right? Uh, second thing is it goes against uh, this idea that you cannot be forced to incriminate yourself under the Indian constitution. So that is extremely important, right? And then finally, in terms of reliability, it's important to remember that uh, basically even the CIA, you know, um, which tried to use uh, this um, particular technique in the 60s, came out with a major report which said that there is no such uh, magic brew called the truth serum as it's popularly known. Uh, why I'm referring to the CIA here is because to some extent, uh, you know, they rely on the literature that also existed and also found that in practice. So I think um, all these techniques, uh, the kind of questions that are raised about reliability and validity are just not talked enough in the Indian context. And I must say that really surprises me. Doctor, you mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, the Indian Constitution's provision, which says that we cannot be forced uh, to incriminate ourselves. And in this context, in 2010, the Supreme Court uh, said this when it put certain safeguards in place coming on the back of a high profile case, uh, the public frenzy surrounding all of these techniques, media leaks from the accused, etc. It made the consent of the accused who was often in custody, a necessity. Did this judgment go far enough in terms of regulating these scientific tests? And what is the legal position of these tests in India as it stands today? That's a great question and a really important one at this point, partly because I'm struck by how much uh, there is suddenly interest in, um, you know, narcoanalysis once again narcoanalysis and polygraph um, and the number of cases in which there are either requests made, but also, you know, uh, lower courts giving uh, permission for the, um, these tests to be used. Uh, and in that context, it's important to look more closely case by case basis to see whether consent of the accused uh, is being taken or not. Right. There's not enough um, sort of coverage of that important fact, which is, of course, linked, as you said, uh, to this um, important Supreme Court decision. So let me say, first of all, that, you know, uh, it was a landmark decision. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Selvi case basically in 2010 uh, made uh, two kinds of interventions which were extremely important. One, uh, it um, sort of really made it clear that these techniques cannot be used without the consent of the accused. And this is important precisely because if you go back and look at all the, you know, important cases where these techniques were being used, whether it was the Arushi case or uh, Mumbai blast case or uh, the Telgi case, right? You could sort of go on and on about the number of cases. Uh, where basically, um, you know, either one of these techniques or a combination of these techniques were used, right? And in many of these cases, consent was not seen as necessary, right? Uh, sometimes the forensic psychologists who I interviewed 
for my book uh, basically ended up saying that we would just take consent right because that was something that they had created as a practice but overall there was no such legal requirement to get consent and in fact there were these uh, pretty remarkable high court uh, judgments which basically said that oh for these kinds of case uh, techniques you actually don't need consent because uh, they are just a natural part of the investigation and they even compared them some of them to um, you know like doing an mri or other medical tests which uh, basically are done in the presence of medical officers and therefore do not require consent right so in that uh, particular context obviously the supreme court's uh, very clear instruction right order that you cannot use these techniques without consent was extremely important the second thing that they did say was even when these techniques are used they cannot be basically used as admissible evidence in a case now that is very important because before this right it wasn't very clear how the evidence from these techniques was being used but the supreme court uh, did allow for an exception the exception is not just for these techniques but more generally in indian law which is section 27 of the indian evidence act which actually allows for discovery or information or statement as a result of these techniques actually to be allowed within investigations right um uh, to uh, to be allowed within a particular case now given this exception right it may explain why is it that you know um the um, resurgence of these techniques actually continued to be the case and to that extent i think what the supreme court basically failed to do is to one recognize that narco analysis uh, is such a invasive technique that they should not have um you know allowed for that the other and this is really uh, the point that i must emphasize is that a lot of the times the indian police the reason why you know it often ends up using torture or physical third degree is often because they actually want confessions right confessions is often the mainstay of criminal investigations now the argument often with uh, these particular truth machines as i call them was that they'll come and replace physical torture now the reality is that it was only introduced in a very few cases right so basically of course you know third degree sort of continues to be the norm but the point that i want to make here is that even when only these truth machines were used right narco analysis brain scans and lie detectors what is very important is that they were primarily another site created for confessions right in a coercive manner right so and i say that because you know it again if you if i just give you one example let's say of uh, aftab's case right where he underwent uh, polygraph five times and um, narco analysis and narco analysis was then followed by a post narco session now the reason why all of these tests often are being done repeatedly 
or are followed by these sessions is precisely because of something that they call a pre-test and post-test interviews, which as the forensic psychologists themselves have told me, are primarily to, to gain confessions. And the reason why that is not the best way to deal with a um, criminal investigation is because it takes away from other ways of gathering investigation. And that is something that the Supreme Court failed to actually address, right? And uh, finally, I'll just say one other thing, which is, that, you know, you have to think about what is the role of medical professionals in this context? Should it be really to uh, work almost as interrogators, right, which they end up doing when they participate so centrally in basically in these kinds of techniques, right? And what it also doesn't look at is the fact that um, in other, you know, countries, right, criminal investigations actually require you to do other kinds of interrogation. It allows, it uh, basically depends on other kinds of forensic science uh, techniques, which don't just focus on forcing somebody to orally betray themselves. And that is something that uh, is not the focus of uh, the Supreme Court decision as well. So doctor, you just mentioned that a lot of these tests were seen to be replacing third degree so to speak. So in your view, the fact that even after the 2010 Supreme Court judgment, the fact that these tests continue to be used, would you say that the police insist on these in high-profile cases less for the search of evidence and more for public performance? I think this is actually a really important point, which um, has, again, not been focused as much. Uh, But I do think you're absolutely right that, you know, one of the reasons why uh, it the kind of traction, right, one has, um, one sees for these uh, techniques again and again, right? Um, And, you know, um, I mostly mentioned about the two most recent cases, and you brought up the case um, more recently as well, right? But the the reality is that if we go back and just think about the fact that even in the Hatras case, right, you know, immediately there was an order from the state government saying that, oh, narco should be done, not only just against uh, the accused, but in fact, the victim's family, as well as the police, right? That was sort of the initial order. Now, think about what that tells us. What that tells us on one hand is that the victim's family is often also not believed. So you basically, you know, create this situation where, in fact, uh, lie detectors and um, uh, such true technologies can also often be used against the very person who's actually been victimized or has been violated. So that's an important thing to remember as well. But the other piece of this is meant to just announce right to proclaim that something is being done right uh, you know um, i often mention how a, a forensic psychologist had told me that you know police would go to a, a rural area and basically say that okay hum narco ke le le we'll take this person for narco and apparently that would calm the crowds that something is being done but that something here is very different 
from just saying that they'll be beaten up, which they cannot actually really say in uh, public. But more importantly, uh, this is a very particular form of performance where it is a simultaneously an articulation of uh, ba basically the use of science, right? You know, there's, there's enough sort of... Um, use of uh, technology, uh, machines, drugs, medical apparatus, right, to basically claim kind of a scientific um, uh, apparatus, right, and the use of experts, right. So forensic psychologists become these, um, you know, really important actors here, because they appear as experts who can help you get to the truth. And yet they are seen as distinct from the police, right, who often are, um, may or may not be trusted, right, with um, their work or uh, what they might do to anybody in custody. So I think it's very important to sort of think about what, you know, I, I had called this a state forensic architecture, right? There's an attempt of uh, the state to also show itself as humane right uh, basically it's always better than physical third degree and therefore you can say that it's humane uh, it's often done in a medicalized situation with the help of science and uh, with the help of experts and all that allows for the kind of a public performance almost like a spectacle that can be used right uh, in earlier times you saw that spectacle in terms of almost leakage of narco videos right this is what used to happen in the early 2000s we have videos in this um, sort of um, i think in the arushi case we have videos telgi uh, and uh, sister selvi right so so you basically have many such uh, cases where videos were actually leaked at a particular moment right so that was the spectacle but now it is much more in terms of forensic experts giving sort of statements, right? You don't see the police in the Aftab case talk too much, but there are several uh, interviews with the forensic science lab officials uh, sort of doing that performance, right? And, you know, uh, if you go back to the origins of these techniques, it was always meant to um, sort of create a sort of a public, a cultural you know, creation of truth rather than a legal or a medical one. And, and I think, you know, to that extent, if the Supreme Court had very clearly rejected these technologies as unreliable and invalid, as they have done, for instance, with the two finger test, right, uh, it would have been a very different reality today. Going back to something you previously said, Doctor, um, about uh, the Supreme Court requiring uh, consent, for instance, how much uh, can that happen if, um, uh, can meaningful consent be obtained in the first place if the person is in custody? And uh, how can, um, even if they, how, how can interrogation methods like narcoanalysis, uh, which stand on shaky science, uh, don't they transgress that? You're absolutely right. I think this is a question that, uh, again, we haven't uh, focused enough, that what does consent mean in custody? And do we even understand what custody really means, right? So 
if you think about a person uh, who's accused and uh, unfortunately uh, oftentimes you know the way in which the criminal justice system works in the indian context but also you know in most contexts it is the marginalized who get um, targeted um, they are assumed as criminals they are often demonized uh, there are um, you know considerations of uh, uh social um, and economic hierarchies based on caste gender class uh ethnicity and religion for instance right so already an accused becomes the focus of uh, a demonization or a criminalization once the person is even you know sort of taken into custody in the first place right um and there is enough evidence in surveys done with the police as well that um, police also shares the same biases that uh, often are there in society so now you have somebody who's an accused who's in custody which also means is completely dependent on the people whose custody that person is in right the police uh, even when they are brought in front of a magistrate it depends on the discretion of the magistrate as to whether they have actually ensured whether all the rights have been um um you know considered or not and in the first period they are much more likely um testimonies suggest that um they are willing to do whatever is necessary for police to investigate though that is that may not be uniformly true right so if this is a custody you know there's a famous line from let's say miranda versus arizona but which is also echoed in uh, indian case uh, satpati versus dani which is about how custody is inherently coercive right so if that's the reality of custody then how does one ensure that consent is actually freely given and you find that that is one of the hardest things right uh, when you leave it to the accused in this situation of um, inherently coercive uh, context to decide whether to uh, subject yourself to uh, any particular technique or not and to that extent i think um, you know we do have to look at consent uh, whether it is informed whether it is possible whether there is enough done to ensure that a person is actually free of any pressure when they make such decisions and if you see the jurisprudence while there's some acknowledgement of how difficult custody is more recently you don't see that reflected in the kind of decisions that rely on just voluntariness right which is what selby did so you're absolutely right that uh, consent remains unexamined uh, or inadequately examined category uh which basically doesn't take into account the particular realities of the kind of pressures without counsel without support that an accused may be in doctor last question could you talking about uh, the use of these tests in the indian context um could you talk to us about any cases where these tests have been abused or where it led to a breakthrough in investigation do we have numbers about how many de- uh, criminal investigations end with the resorting of these uh, to these techniques of investigation uh, has there been any research on the subject at all in india well um, you know 
it's um, um, it's still not adequately examined uh, area uh, i would say partly because you know you only had forensic science labs sort of generate their own data and have their own records uh, i think it has been very difficult to get a entire set of data on exactly how many cases um, some of these techniques have been used there are some uh, details that i was able to find when i was doing research for my book the truth machines where i did interviews with forensic psychologists lawyers activists and police in five cities um and there um you know i did find some reference by um forensic science lab a report uh, that they had brought out from gujarat uh, where they uh, talk uh, about some numbers which suggests that there were thousands of cases right but um, that's sort of the closest we have um, a reference to the point about whether they were successful in uh, getting information i think you will find that there are forensic psychologists who claim that uh, there were um, you know breakthroughs that were made but i think it is also important to realize that because a range of techniques are used it's very difficult to really assert whether one or the other technique actually worked in a particular case right so um, you know so i would generally say that basically that has been the hardest thing to judge uh, these claims that are made by the forensic psychologists themselves on the other hand there are some police who initially were very taken by these uh, techniques but later felt that um, you know there was over reliance on that and and i think uh, that's something to um, think about uh, as well um, to give you just one quick example when you think about uh sort of it's not just the legal case that is um determining in a particular context right let's say in the arushi case uh where of course arushi and hemraj were found dead um and uh in that particular context even though the evidence from the narco videos were never admitted uh, directly you know it played a major role in the popular campaign that challenged the um, conviction of the parents so i think we have to look at this not just a, through a legal um, and policing framework but also sort of the popular um, you know framework as well thank you so much for speaking to us dr lokanita my pleasure thanks for talking to me in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.